0: Well, it's great to be with you. Like Mark said, here in 2018. So raise your hand if you were here in 2018. Yeah, so see, this is mostly new faces for me. So praise God for what He's done. This is really great, and it's really wonderful to be with you. Um, One thing that's really been maybe one of the biggest blessings of being a missionary is how people from all over the world are praying for us. It's just amazing to us. Um, I think about a pastor in the States and I doubt that they have that kind of prayer support in their lives. And so we're so thankful for that, and we're so thankful for you, for your prayers. I was just talking with someone who said, um, I, I know we, you don't really know me, or we don't really know each other, but I feel like I know you because we've been praying for you so much. And I'm just so thankful for that from your church. So thank you from the bottom of my heart and Christine's heart. We're very grateful for all that you've done for us and your prayer support and also your financial support for us. And thank you that we can be here on Sunday morning with you as well. Like I said, this is my wife, Christine, here, my daughter, Amelia, and Anetta is somewhere. Oh, here she is. Okay. Uh, Rhonda has Aneta, And we have two other boys, Jeremiah and Jonathan, but they're with their grandparents in um, California. But I'm sure they really wish they could be here in this weather. Um, in California, I'm sure right now it's hard for them, but they'll survive. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure the swimming pool is really cold. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, so um, th- why Poland? Why did we go to Poland? Um, I was not growing up thinking, you know what, I just, when I'm in the future, I want to be a missionary in Poland. Some people have that. They, their parents were missionaries in that country, and they go. I think if you would have asked me 10 years ago, where is Poland? I, I hope I would have found it on the map pretty quickly, but I'm not really so sure how quickly I would have been able to identify where it is. I maybe would have remembered that in 1939, Hitler invaded Poland to start World War II. So I think I would have kind of gotten there. But it was not on my heart. I was just sitting at lunch one day in seminary and a Polish guy pulled up a chair next to me and told me about the needs in Poland. And I had already thought, I don't really want to go to the mission field. I'd rather just stay in the States because I speak English pretty well and I don't really see a need to learn a second language. And I was in seminary um, before this conversation, if I remember correctly, and an older missionary brother had come to the chapel. His name is Bob Provost. He's been a missionary for a long time, engaged in missions, and he said, listen, This is the whole point of his message. You at least need to be willing to go anywhere and do anything for Christ. At least that. At least be willing to go anywhere and do anything for Christ. So I thought, okay. And then I'll do that. So I'll repent of this lack of desire, lack of, I forget the word, but I'll, I'll learn a second language if that's what God wants me to do. And I just decided, though, I want to go somewhere in the world, I thought somewhere in the U.S., where there wouldn't be much access to Bible teaching. Because where we were in Southern California, there were like eight healthy churches in our town. And I thought, I don't want to be a pastor here because there's already eight churches here. I want to go somewhere else where there's not that kind of access. Um, and then I sat down at lunch this day. that The Polish guide tells me about the needs in Poland, that it's predominantly Roman Catholic, that the evangelical church is very small, and the church that is there is very troubled and not healthy, that there are hardly any resources in the Polish language. And I was just my heart was just burning like I want to go there. That's where I want to go. Um and I came home and I told Christine and I, I said I think I know where we're going to go after seminary. <laughs> Which may not the best way to approach that. And she said uh she said, "Well, where?" I said, "Poland." She said, "Well, that doesn't sound too bad." <laughs> so, um so that's that's kind of the the way that we got there. But Poland is like I said historically Catholic since it was incepted as a country I think in 966 AD, the first king was baptized as a Roman Catholic. And now, to be Polish is to be Roman Catholic. And our uh, our friend, the, my ministry partner, Tomik, that I ate lunch with that day, he said that to tell a Polish person to turn from Catholicism is kind of like asking an American to burn the American flag. That's kind of what it feels like to them, because it's so intertwined to who they are as a national identity. Um, but things are changing in Poland. And in fact, I was just telling Mark and Ronda last and I think if they went back, they'd be surprised at how un-Catholic Poland is becoming. It's becoming increasingly secular, and people still have this Catholic tradition within their families, but they're not really practicing Catholicism very much. The Catholic church attendance is is way down, but it's not really giving way to the truth. It's just people are going into more of the EU, European Union, secular, all that agenda. But still, as you drive down the road in Poland, you'll see shrines to Mary. You've got this big statue of Mary and a little tiny Jesus on top, and I think that maybe shows you a little bit of how they approach, um, how they approach their faith. It's a lot about Mary, the mother, mother Mary. Um, priests will teach classes in schools. They have religion classes. You can exempt out of those, but that's kind of interesting. You'll be in a school and there'll be a Catholic priest there teaching. Um, and like I said, the evangelical church is very small and it's very fraction. There's not a whole lot of evangelical churches working together within the country. So that's why we went to Poland and, um, and since we've been there, We joined an existing church that that Mark had mentioned, pastored by Yannick Paggio and Tomik Kronjek, and it's been a huge blessing for us. Uh, We are so spoiled as missionaries. I think most missionaries go in and they join a church that's either really struggling or a place where there's no church, and they've got to start everything from scratch. Man, that would be really hard. (laughs) So we joined an existing church, and God has been so kind to us that way. We've had a lot of support during Christine's health trials that we've had. And we really made Polish the first focus of our first two years there. That's what our organization said we could do: is just focus on that, and that was that's been a blessing. So, um, lots of conversations, and now we're preaching in Polish. I'm preaching in Polish, not Christine. I'm preaching in Polish. Um, evangelism, building relationships with people, etc. And um, and then I became a pastor in the church in June. So. That means I've been a pastor for, officially, for four or five months. So if you have any deep pastoral issues, I have four or five months of experience. If you want to come to me, I'm happy to help you. I'm just kidding, kind of. (laughs) Uh, And then we started a training center, a a training center for Poland. Um, We wanted people in our church to be trained as well, but we also wanted to look outside of our local church because Poland needs training. People don't know how to handle the Word of God. And so we started a three-year training program, and we're in our first year Right now, and by God's grace, 40 people or so signed up for it from nine different churches in Poland. And they come once a month. Right now we're doing a Bible survey, Genesis through Revelation in 10 months. And just trying to give people the big picture of the Word of God. And then once you have that big picture and you understand the Word of God in general, then you can build on that in future, um, subjects. So next year, God willing, we'll work on hermeneutics, how to study your Bible. We'll work on biblical counseling in future years, how to teach the Bible, what a healthy church looks like, systematic theology. So we're building on that foundation, and that's what we're doing right now. And so we're really grateful uh, for this. And also, um, just normal church ministries we're doing, of course, preaching the Word of God on Sundays and Bible studies and discipleship. So if you would like to be involved, we would just love your prayers. And I know you're already doing that, so please just excel still more. That means the world to us. Um, you could pray for open doors for the gospel. Um, I was just telling Hakum yesterday that it's kind of a funny thing that happens when you're in ministry, is you actually start to have less time with unbelievers because you're involved in studying the Word of God, and then you're doing Bible studies for believers, and you're counseling believers who are having struggles and so on, and you're not working in the world with people eight hours a day who aren't saved, and so you you're, you start to have this limitation. So you could pray for us personally that we would be able to form relationships with unbelievers and be able to minister the gospel to them, um, but also in general, that the gospel would go forth in Poland. You could pray for boldness. You could pray that God would bless our training. Um, you could pray that we get a new location, because like you, we're starting to grow out of uh, where we are, and you could pray for my wife's health, which has been a trial uh, for the last few, four or five years, okay? So um, if you'd like to know more, I think there'll be an open house today. We'll be there. You're welcome to come uh, at five o'clock, right, For the open house? Okay. So thank you again for all that. But let's transition now to the Word of God. Uh, If you could open your Bibles, please, to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your Word and we thank you for the privilege to open it, to hear from you. That's really an amazing thing to think, that we will hear from the God of the universe. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be receptive. We pray that the truths that are in in these verses in the Bible would change our lives. We pray that you would help us to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that everything will be presented clearly and faithfully. And we pray this for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, okay, yes, I'm a missionary. But in some sense, everybody is a missionary if you're a Christian. Amen? Everybody is on mission. Everybody is because Jesus Christ had disciples make disciples, who will in turn what? Make disciples and so on. And so we're all in that process. We're disciple making disciples. So just because I'm a missionary as my job and occupation doesn't mean that I'm the only missionary in this room. We're all on mission. And all on mission in different ways. Um, not everybody is a pastor. Not everybody is a preacher. Not everybody is a teacher. We all have different gifts that we use. For all to be involved in reaching the lost for Jesus Christ. And i really loved preaching through Titus. I'm almost done with it in our church. Because Titus was a guy who was sent from the Apostle Paul to go minister on the island of Crete. And Titus's job was to help various churches get organized, and get set up because Paul had come there, preached the gospel, and now there's believers. They need to be organized into churches. And then these people on the island of Crete were to be used by God to reach unbelievers on the island of Crete. And this is really the same for us today. You're in Medina in this church, and God wants to use you to reach unbelievers in your sphere of influence in Medina or wherever you live close by. And so we're all on mission, um, and I want to focus on one aspect of our mission that we don't always talk about. Because we do talk about evangelism, right? That nobody's going to be saved unless they hear the gospel. And I just want to say, amen. There, if there's no gospel preaching, nobody's getting saved. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen, Romans one sixteen. 16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So without the gospel, you don't have salvation. But one thing that Paul wants Titus to teach the churches on Crete is that an important part of fulfilling your mission is your testimony. And by that, I don't mean your personal testimony of how you came to Christ, although there is a place for that, but your witness, your godly lifestyle that you live, so that you live a godly lifestyle before unbelievers, and the way that you live your life backs up what you say about Jesus Christ. Would you give your car to a mechanic? whose car barely drove? Would you consult a financial planner who just declared bankruptcy? Would you hire someone to clean your home if their home was a complete disaster? Would you choose a real estate agent who was homeless? And I think, of course, we would not do that. But if we, as Christians, talk about the power of God to change lives and the love of Jesus Christ, and we don't show love, and we're not gracious, and God's power isn't evidently changing us and has not evidently changed us to this point, Will people want to listen when we start to share the gospel with them about Jesus Christ? Well, probably not. But if you live your life in a way that's God-honoring and godly and gracious, even before unbelievers who are very unkind to you, then very likely doors will open for the gospel because they're going to not understand you. Why would you act this way? Or a door will be kept open for the gospel because they'll say, I'm going to listen to this person because I can see there's something different about the way that they live. And as you read through the book of Titus, you can see that Paul is emphasizing this over and over and over again for the churches. Not just for Titus as the leader of the churches, but for Titus to instruct the churches that they would grow and that they would live godly lives for God's glory. So let's read Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, Demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would have become, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. So, as you go through the book of Titus, you can see three big needs that Titus is to address. One of them is godly leadership in the church, and that's more or less chapter one. Chapter two is for godly Christians in their individual life circumstances. So, he talks about how older men should live and how older women should live, younger men, younger women, slaves, and so on. And so, he wants the people to live a godly life in their sphere. And then in chapter three... He's talking about Christians living a godly life in general, in society. And that's where we find ourselves today in the book of Titus. You can see from Titus chapter 1 that the island of Crete, where Titus was ministering, was not a very easy place to minister because, it says this, Titus one twelve, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans, that's people who live on Crete, Cretans are always liars. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. So Titus didn't necessarily have an easy ministry location, and the Cretans tended to be very unkind and lazy and drunk. And so that's where, that's where Titus was ministering the gospel. I want to show you three reminders today that will help you in your Christian witness. Here are the three reminders. I want you to remember your responsibility in society. I want you to remember the reason, and I want you to remember the reward. Remember your responsibility, remember the reason, and remember the reward. So let's go first to the responsibility, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, consider demonstrating all gentleness to all men. So now Paul is focusing on on a reminder for them. That's the people in the churches, so therefore it's for everyone. And notice how it says, remind. This is important for us. When we hear a sermon, sometimes we think, well, I've already heard a sermon about that. Well, yeah, that's good, but you need a reminder. We all need reminders in our lives. It's not as if we could hear the truth one time, and we know everything we need to know about that. We need to constantly be reminded, and these believers probably heard from Paul directly, or from Titus, about their need to live a certain godly way in society, and, and Paul is saying, but remind them about this. I really, I, they, they need to remember this. And what are the things? Well, There are seven things. One of them is to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient to them. Um, So if you're subject, that means you have an attitude of submission. And so the Cretan believers were not to be coming against the people in charge, the, the authorities. This refers to anybody who's really in charge in an official way. So in our context, it would be from the president to the clerk at the DMV. You're to have a submissive heart to them and you're to be obedient. Not enough just to be submissive, but to also obey their, directi- their directives, and to be ready for every good work, and whether that's in the context of society, of, of wanting to do good in your civil government, doesn't say, but just everything, in any way, to be ready for every good work. To slander no one, that's to speak evil of no one, that you don't say the worst about someone else, you hold back your tongue from speaking things that are the worst. And, you know, there's a temptation even for believers because unbelievers can often be very difficult to live with. It can be difficult for us to respond in a godly way when an unbelieving person is very unkind to you and the temptation is to return to your past way of life. Your, your flesh wants to live in a certain way that doesn't honor the Lord and Paul is saying, don't do it. Don't slander them. In fact, they need to be peaceable or in the English Standard Version, is to avoid quarreling. We're not the kind of people that should be starting arguments with unbelievers. We're to overlook offenses from unbelievers. We don't stir up conflicts with them. Proverbs 17:14 says, The beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so abandon the dispute before it breaks out. We're to be considerate. And this happens when you give up your rights. Maybe you let someone go ahead of you in line. Maybe you're driving on the road, and someone wants to come in front of you and you let them into your lane, because it is your lane, right? You let them into your lane. Uh, maybe you wash someone dishes for them at work, even though they should have washed the cup themselves. Maybe you're gracious if someone is late to a meeting, and you say, you know, that happens to all of us sometimes. Maybe you just simply take an interest in unbelievers. You just ask them how they're doing in, from a genuine, a genuine way. And then Paul sums it up. Here's your responsibility. This is a summary statement at the end. You need to show... All gentleness to all men. Not some gentleness to all men. Not all gentleness to some men, but all gentleness to all men. And this is basically just not thinking very highly of yourself. It's having a humble approach to people in the world like Christ was. Humble. There's a good example in the book, The Hiding Place. Um, I'm not sure if you've read that book, but it's about um, these this family who is hiding Jews during World War II, and at one point the SS soldiers come into the house and and there was a a lady named Betsy who was struck by one of these SS, SS soldiers. She came downstairs. I think she had a black eye. And her sister said, did he hit you? And Betsy responded, yes, I feel bad for him. This gentle, kind, humble approach. And that's how God wants us to live in society. And just imagine, if we live this way before unbelievers, they may ask us, why do you act that way? Or, why don't you get angry with the boss? Why don't you complain about others around you? Why do you obey those tax laws? Why don't you give pe- people a piece of your mind? And you could say, because of Christ. And you have an open door for the gospel. So what's the particular application for you? Is it an unsafe spouse? Is it a hostile relative? Is it a belligerent neighbor? Is it a jealous coworker? Is it a suspicious boss? Is it an unkind classmate? And someone might be thinking here, this is really hard. I mean, this is really hard to do that. You don't know my unsaved boss. You don't know my unsaved father. You don't know my unsaved neighbor. You don't know the pain that my wayward child is putting me through. You don't know how mean the kids are to me in class. You don't know my coach. But the Lord gives us a wonderful reason, an encouraging reason, as to why we can... And must show this kind of love to the lost. So that's the second point. Remember the reasons. Here's the first reason. Because we used to be the same way. That's the first reason. That's verse 3. For we ourselves, for we ourselves, also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and so on. We used to be in the same boat as they did. And that ought to provide a little bit of humility for us when unbelievers act like unbelievers toward us. Oh yeah, we used to be exactly the same way before God radically invaded my life and transformed me and gave me a new life in Christ. We used to be the same way. How did we used to be? Foolish. We didn't understand spiritual truth. Disobedient. Our foolish thinking led to disobedient actions in our life. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And notice how it says various. It's not as if we had one sin before we were saved that we enjoyed in sinfulness is various lusts, various pleasures, and we were enslaved to them. We couldn't say no to doing those things before Christ saved us. We are spending our life in malice and in envy. Malice is when you want something bad for people, and envy is when you don't want them to experience anything good. And so it's no surprise, the next one, that we were despicable, that we were hated by them, because we didn't want anything good for them, and so they hated us. And then what do we do in return? We hated them back. And you have this downward spiral. And this is us before Christ. And you can see that we had no hope before Christ. Well, okay, we did have hope in Christ, but humanly speaking, we had no hope. How would we have been saved? We didn't understand well. We couldn't have saved ourselves. We didn't desire well, because we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And we didn't live well. We were disobedient, spending our life in malice and envy and so on. And if another person wanted to save us, another human, what would they have done to save us when they were doing all the same things? Our only hope was that the Lord would save us. We're all running away from God. And that's the wonderful thing to remember next, is that God saved us. God saved us. And you can see that in verse 5. That's the main verb here. He saved us. But that phrase, He saved us, is defined by the rest of the things in verses 4 and 5. So we get a picture of what God's salvation is like. And so... The first thing we notice, it it says, but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared. But when, so this is the timing of when we were saved. When, and it says here, but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared. And that word appeared in the New Testament, I've read, is always in reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But certainly in the book of Titus, that word appeared is in reference to Jesus Christ coming to the earth. Look in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And then verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So verse 11 is talking about Christ coming in the flesh as a baby in Bethlehem. And then verse 13 is talking about the second appearance of Christ, the second coming of Christ when he comes back to the world. And then when we get to chapter 3, verse 5, It's talking about the time, again, when Christ came to the earth as a baby, his life, his death, his resurrection, when when the kindness and affection of God, our Savior, appeared. And what Paul is saying here is that when Christ came to the world, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that he perfectly showed forth the kindness and the affection of God, our Savior, when Christ came. And he saved us, not by works, which we did in righteousness, it's not by works that we're saved, but according to his mercy. And somebody might say that, well, don't don't unbelievers sometimes do good works? I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've benefited from the good works of unbelievers, um, even on our travels, just the way the different unbelievers were kind to us in the airports and the airplanes. Um, Don't they do good works? Paul says here that it's not on the basis of good works, and I think the answer is this. Those works that unbelievers do that seem to be good in our eyes are actually not good in God's eyes, because God is holy, holy, holy. And we, all of us, apart from Christ, are dead in our trespasses and sins. And how could someone who's dead in their trespasses and sins offer anything to God that would be acceptable to him who is holy, holy, holy? We... Always, as unbelievers, we always did things that were stained in some measure by sin. Always. In our motivations or some way, there's nothing that we could do to earn God's pleasure because everything about us was stained by sin. When I was um, just starting seminary, I worked in a restaurant as a busser. And I don't know what (laughs) what bussers usually do. We did everything as bussers. We did the dishes and we cleaned the bathrooms. And set the tables, cleared the table, did some food prep. Um, I remember one day I was setting a table and uh, I was putting the napkins onto the table. And I worked at Claim Jumper. Do you guys have Claim Jumper here in this area of the United States? Okay, it's this big restaurant with huge desserts and I think they had a red velvet cake. And I was putting the, the napkins down on the table and I saw some bright red frosting on the napkins. And Ah, it's like, okay, so I, you know, I take that napkin away, and I put another napkin on, and there's more of that bright red frosting. So I'm, I'm wiping my hands, trying to, and then I do it again, there's bright red frosting. Well, it wasn't bright red frosting. You know what it was? It was blood. I had nicked my finger when I was working with the silverware, and I just think, like, man, how unacceptable is that to put a napkin with blood on it on the table for customers coming to the restaurant? I mean, it's just totally unacceptable, right? And that's a little bit what it's like with unbelievers. When they do a good work, It seems like it's a good work. But with with the sin that's stained in the motivations, their motivations that are stained that, it's completely unacceptable before a holy God. So nobody can say, God saved me because I'm better than other people. Nobody can say that. You know why you're saved? If you're saved here today, do you know why? Because God felt bad for you. And God felt bad for me. And that's exactly what the text says. He saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He was merciful to us. He was not like a team captain, you know, dividing out teams. And, you know, I think I'll save John Doe because I only have to give him 80% of the forgiveness that I would have to give this other guy. We were all dead in our sins. And God was gracious to us. And he saw us and he pitied us. He felt bad for us. And that's why we're saved. And it says, through the washing of regeneration, and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, and this gives two aspects of our salvation, two aspects, actually, of our regeneration, which is us getting new life from God. The first aspect is the washing of regeneration. Now, um, a lot of people, when they see the word washing, they think, oh, okay, okay, this is talking about baptism. Baptism. It's got to be, because there's the word washing it. Well, it doesn't say the washing of baptism. It says the washing of regeneration, This isn't talking about baptism. This is talking about all of your sins being washed away at the moment that you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of them, completely washed away. Baptism is a public demonstration of what's happened to you on the inside. And you're saying, hey, I'm in Christ now. And you want to show that publicly. But it doesn't save you. It happens after you get saved. That's what baptism is to happen after you get saved. All of our sins are washed away. You just imagine if a a child jumped into a trash can on outside on trash day in one of those big containers, just a complete mess. And mom comes outside and shrieks and grabs the kid, brings him inside, gives him a bath, washes him with soap. And in 10 minutes, you wouldn't even know that he was such a complete mess. All of the dirt and the grime and the crud just washed down the drain and you will never see it again. Hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully, right? We've all had plumbing issues, but hopefully you'll never see it again. And it's kind of like what we've received in Christ, except we've been washed on the inside. All of your sins have been washed away, they've gone down the drain, and you'll never see them again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when you think back to your life of sin, you don't have to feel guilty. I'm not excusing it. It was wrong. It was more wrong than we even know. Because we don't even understand how much those sins offended a holy God. But you don't have to feel guilty. You know what you should feel? Grateful. You should feel grateful to Jesus Christ that he forgave all of your sins. You've been washed. The washing of regeneration. You've been given a brand new life. And that's what Paul emphasizes in the next part. And renewing by the Holy Spirit. Renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is focusing on the new life that we receive in Christ at the moment of our salvation. We needed a brand new life. And God does that. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 A wonderful, a wonderful verse. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're a new creature in Christ. You have new passions, new desires, a new heart, new priorities. And these are the things that God wants you to live out in your life. So he doesn't just give you a new life to not live it out. He gives you a brand new start and you live a new life for God from the moment of your salvation. Now that does not mean that we don't struggle with sin anymore. Of course we still struggle with sin because we still have our unredeemed bodies. One day we'll get new bodies and we won't sin anymore. One day this body will be in the grave and it'll be resurrected and we won't struggle with that sin anymore. But now we still struggle. But the struggle ought to be different today than it was before you were a believer. You ought to see a difference in your life. If you're in Christ, there ought to be fruit in your life that you are bearing to prove that you are indeed a new person. Because God has given you a brand new nature if you're saved. But the problem is a lot of people think, oh, I am saved because I prayed a prayer. Or because I went to church or because I grew up in a Christian home or whatever. But it's like they've never actually received this new nature from Christ, and therefore their life is never born true spiritual fruit. And if that's you today, then you need to realize that you've got to just go to Christ. He's the only one that can save you. There's no one else you can turn to, and you certainly can't turn to yourself, and you certainly can't turn to your good works. Oh yeah, because you don't have any. You need Jesus Christ and Him alone, because He lived the perfect life, and He died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sinners, and He rose again on the third day, so that if anyone will believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from their sins, they'll be saved. And you live this new life for God out of a life of gratitude. Somebody said that every religion in the world is the same except for true Christianity because every religion in the world says that you have to try to do something to be good enough for God. You've got you've to put the effort in. And if you put enough effort in, then maybe you'll make it to heaven. Maybe you'll make it to paradise. But the Bible says you can't. And you didn't. And you won't. And the only hope for you is that Jesus Christ has paid the price in full for you, and you just trust him, and you go to him. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, you can start by praying. I'm not saying you have to pray this rote prayer, but you come to God in faith. You say, God, I'm a sinner. Luke 18, have mercy on me, a sinner, and you come to the Lord. So if you're not saved in here today, that is your number one need because it is of eternal significance that you would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would turn from your sins. That you say, I don't want this life of sin anymore. I want him. I want Christ. And again, why is Paul telling us all this? It's so that we'll remember why we should live such gracious and gentle and kind-hearted lives toward who? Toward unbelievers, people in society. If God did all this for us when we were verse three. We were foolish and disobedient and so on. And then he saved us and gave us a new life and all of our sins washed away. Couldn't we show this kind of love to unbelievers? Couldn't we be like Jesus who did all of this for us? That's the point. Um, I like going on to YouTube and finding these interviews of World War II vets. Somebody, I guess there's quite a few of these things, but you can find them. These guys are old. I think a lot of these interview um, interviews happened a few years ago. So now these guys have since died. But they tell you about what they experienced in Europe or in the Pacific. And um, there was one guy named Ted Estridge who fought in World War II during fierce combat in Okinawa, Okinawa in the Pacific. And he said this. He said, in November 1958, the Lord called me in the ministry. He called me to go back to Okinawa as a missionary. Now I'll tell you, I hated Okinawa. I hated the Japanese people at the time until the Lord saved me and gave me a love for the Japanese people and Okinawans. I took my family, and we spent 15 years on Okinawa as missionaries. Did you catch that? Until the Lord saved me. And when God saves us, there ought to be a love in our hearts also, even for difficult unbelievers, even for you in your difficult situation, which I don't know about. I mean, everybody has different work, different family situations, different neighbor situations, different class and school situations. But one thing that is the same for all of us if we're in Christ, is God has shown extraordinary kindness and extraordinary patience and extraordinary love for us. In fact, the goodness, well, that's the ESV, the kindness and the affection of God our Savior was appeared in Jesus Christ. And so we can show that same love to others, especially because, like I mentioned, we have a new nature now. We have a new—we have a whole new life from God that we're to live out. And so we need to do that. It's not an option for us. This is how God wants us to live. It's how he's calling us to live and how he's requiring us to live. Um, you'll see in verse 6, whom he, in the, in, the, in the context here, this is God the Father, whom he poured out on us richly, so he poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And notice here that the Holy Spirit has poured on, has been poured on us richly, um, this is another verse that you can go to if somebody thinks that you can have part of the Holy Spirit in one part of your life and get more of the Holy Spirit later. Well, these verses here are talking about the moment of your salvation. This is about when you get saved and the and the Spirit of God is poured out on us richly when? At that point in time. If you go to Romans chapter 8, I'll show you one other verse about that. If somebody's in Christ, if somebody's a Christian, they have the Holy Spirit in full measure. You don't get two doses or anything like that. It's verse eight. 8. Romans 8.8, 8, and those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So either you have the Spirit, or you don't. If you don't, you're not saved. If you do, you're saved. But there's none of this double, um, double, you get it all, you get the whole Holy Spirit at the moment of your salvation. And then it's your job to be submissive um, to the commands of Scripture by the power of the Spirit. he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I think what Paul is emphasizing here is that the reason that the Spirit of God can actually take up residence within us and live inside of us and be part of our lives, which is amazing, illuminating the Scripture, encouraging us toward righteousness, convicting us of our sin, the reason that he can live in us as sinful people is through Jesus Christ, because we're cleansed and purified through Jesus Christ. And now positionally, even though we still struggle with sin, practically, positionally, We are totally holy and pure before God. We've been set apart for God. And Jesus Christ has done that through his atoning death and his resurrection from the dead. So that, verse 7, and this is amazing. So if this wasn't enough, now Paul has talked about our past, verse 3. He's talked about our present, verses 4 and 5 and 6, about the salvation that we're currently enjoying, the Spirit of God living within us, the new life that we have in God, in Christ. And now, in verse 7, he focuses on the future. So as if it wasn't enough for us to think about all that God has done for us now, he also points our gaze to the future so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. According to the hope of eternal life. And so what Paul is emphasizing here is that we have a future inheritance as well. So if God has also given us a future inheritance, how much more should we continue to show love and kindness and graciousness to unbelievers if God has done so much for us and then we can in turn show that kind of love toward unbelievers. Um, what is the hope of eternal life? What are we heirs of? Well, we're looking forward to the day that Jesus Christ will come back, set up his earthly kingdom, reign from this earth for a thousand years, where everything will be right, where, where um, the earth will be renewed and we look forward to the eternal state. Let me just read you a couple of verses about the eternal state. Revelation 21, verse 4. Revelation 21, 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Just the next page over, Revelation 22, 3 through 5. And there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. This is our future hope. You say, well, what about right now? What if I died today before the rapture? What if I died and Christ hasn't come back and set up his kingdom? Well, then you're with the Lord in what theologians call the intermediate estate, where you're with God you're, to be absent from the body. 2 Corinthians 5.8 is to be present with the Lord. So you have a future hope. Your future hope is secured in the Lord. And if God has done so much for us and even giving us a future hope, then how could we not also show this kind of love and grace to others? I skipped one part inadvertently in verse 7, the first part, so that, having been justified by His grace, Paul is giving us the um, a, a really a summary of what he said to this point. And that's this, that you are declared righteous by the grace of God. By His total unmerited favor that He's given to you, you've been justified if you're in Christ. And that's as if you were in court. Um, the evidence against you was overwhelming. You'd expect the judge to drop the gavel and to hear the words, Guilty as charged, but instead God's gavel dropped, and because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and the faith that he granted you to, to believe in him, the answer is not guilty. We're, we're declared righteous before the Lord, and that's all by his grace. And Paul, at the end here, in verse 8, he just brings all of it into a summary, uh, not a summary, all of it to a conclusion, to an application for us. And he says, "This is a trustworthy saying." And uh, there are five of these different trustworthy sayings in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And probably these trustworthy sayings were creeds that the church had. That they would they would go through these creeds together, and they probably had them in memory. And Paul was probably quoting from one of these creeds as he went through verses four through seven. And he's saying it's a trustworthy saying, but it doesn't just mean that it's something that was a creed. It also means that you can trust it. And sometimes we have doubts about our salvation. You may doubt, are all my sins really washed away? And you can go back to the verse, and it says, well, yeah, because it's a trustworthy saying. God wants me to trust it, and it says, through the washing of regeneration. You may have doubts, Am I, do I really have a new life to live for God? Is, is the Spirit of God really going to help me conquer my sins that I struggle with so much? And you say, well, yeah, it's a trustworthy saying. And it says here, renewing of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Does God really care? And Does He really love him? Well, yeah, because the kindness and the affection of God our Savior appeared. Are people really that bad? I mean, are unbelievers really that bad that we need to call them to repentance? Well, yeah, because we were all once foolish. But you can trust the word of God. That's the point. This is a trustworthy saying. And Paul says to Titus, "I want you, in concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently or to insist on these things." So he says, Titus, don't just put this out as a suggestion. Okay, you don't you don't come, Titus, and say, you know, I've been doing some thinking and. I really think it'd be a good idea for you guys to live a godly, way in society. But take it or leave it. I'll leave it to you. I think it's persuasive. No, of course not. He's saying, Titus, this is what the church has to do. Insist on this. You've got to live this godly life. Those are going to open the doors for the gospel. That's how people are going to see the power of a changed life, what the Holy Spirit does. They've got to live it out. And that's our Christian life. God, God has changed our lives, and we live it out by his power but we, it still takes our effort. And that's a whole other sermon from chapter 2 of Titus. It still takes your effort, but that effort is ultimately motivated by God Himself. And so you live this out in the power of the Holy Spirit, saying, insist on it, Titus. Make sure that they do it. Why? So that those who have believed God, Christians, will be intent to lead in good works. That their lives will be characterized by good works. That's a theme. You'll see it over and over and over again in Titus. Good works. I want them to live a life of good works. Why? These things. All that he's talked about, these things, including the good works, including the theological readings, all of these things are good and profitable for men. Well, good uh, in the sense that your godly life will help preserve the society. You know that, right? Uh, that's Matthew 5. Uh, i find my notes here. I think it's Matthew 5.13. Let's, let's look. It's not in my notes. Matthew 5.13. Oh, good. It is 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless... Mark, have you ever been there? Have you ever gone to a verse and you couldn't remember the reference while you're preaching? Oh, never. Never, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's an awkward moment for a preacher when you're looking and and then you're supposed to be reading it, but all the text, you get kind of nervous and all the text just kind of bundles together on the page and you're thinking, do I summarize it? Like, what do I do? (laughs) so... Ah, I'm glad of this, 513. Listen to this. This is the words of Christ. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, you will how will it be made salty? And you're the salt of the earth. Well, what does salt do back then? It preserves things, it preserved the food. And in a similar way, your godly life in society will help be a preservative effect in this society, which is going downhill fast. But not only that, go back to Titus chapter 3. It's not only good, Titus 3:8, uh, because uh, These things are good and profitable for men. Profitable in what sense? Well, to answer that question, we have to decide what does it mean for men. And in the context of Titus, it's talking about for unbelievers. These things are profitable for unbelievers. And Paul is is making explicit what was already strongly implicit, and that's that your life of good works will be, if God wills, a tool in God's hand to help open doors for the gospel and to help people actually come to faith in Christ. So it's a one-two punch. You've got to preach the gospel. You've got to tell people about Christ. You've got to tell people about sin. You've got to tell people about faith and repentance. You've got to tell people that God is holy. But at the same time, you've got to have that second punch too, that you live a godly life so that people can understand and see that, and God wants to use that to help people to come to know him. And Jesus said something very similar. This time I know the reference. It's Matthew 5.16. So go back to Matthew 5. Matthew 5.16, he said something very similar that sums up really everything to this point, he says, let your light shine, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's what I hope we'll do. As we think about the book of Titus, as as you think about your particular situation, school, work, and your family, your neighborhood, whatever it may be, that God would help us to remember everything that we've been saved from, and that would give us the motivation to live a godly life, showing all gentleness to all men, so that there might be open doors for the gospel, and the people might be saved, because we're all on mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for how wonderful it is to remember everything you've done for us. Thank you that all of our sins are washed away. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to feel guilty about our sins that we've committed in the past. Thank you, Lord, that all the sins that we've committed since becoming believers are also forgiven in Christ. Thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that you love us and thank you for the hope that we have in, in you. I pray, Lord, that we would be effective in how we live our lives before unbelievers and that the way that we live before them would open up doors for the gospel. I pray that the way that we live before them would keep doors open for the gospel. And I pray that, that we would be marked by this godly living. Um, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the things that you're doing here. I pray that many more people in this area would be saved. And we just um, praise you for who you are. And I ask if anybody in this room, even now, is not yet saved, that they would come to Christ because He is the only hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church.